Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. You can visit the uh, donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program. And speaking to sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. All right, so um, to kick it off here, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to welcome Dr. Mark Allen Derry to the program, but i got to tell you, the um, breaking news, unrelated to the conversation we're planning to have, is the cataclysmic die-off of plankton in the Atlantic Ocean, as, uh, as discovered by research conducted by a university in Edinburgh, Scotland. It is um, a bad deal with a big B, and... Um, We'll talk about it a little bit more later in the program because I want to uh, always valued having uh, having Mark Allen on the program. Hello, uh, Dr. Derry. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me on. So I want to talk about your your humanitarian aid trip to Ukraine. But first, um, you know, a lot of us across the country are paying attention to the uh, Supreme Court ruling on abortion, and certainly we have you know Iowa, red state, Louisiana, probably a bit redder. And I'm, I'm just intrigued by what's going on with abortion in your state. Can you kind of update people about that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, the, the whole story really starts with two Democratic governors. So I, I, I just want to make that point because when they say vote blue no matter who, I just want to be very clear that our anti-abortion so-called trigger laws were signed in by two Democratic governors. The first one was Governor uh, Kathleen Blanco. Y'all may remember her. She really got a lot of press during Hurricane Katrina. She was really one of uh, uh, Louisiana's heroes with Hurricane Katrina. I do remember that. The, yeah. yeah, despite the uh, a mitigated disaster. But in 2006, she signed into law a strict ban on abortion should Roe ever be overturned. And then flash forward to June 21st, 2022, so that was a couple days before the Supreme Court ruling, Governor John Bell Edwards signed uh, another trigger law. So the first trigger law looked for one to 10 years of prison time for physicians who performed abortions. Oh my gosh. The new one that John Bell Edwards signed was 10 to 15 year sentences. So it still is even a more strict anti-trigger law. And also, let me just also just remind your listeners in case they missed it, that a couple days before he signed that law, he signed one of the country's strictest anti-trans laws as well. That was one of those sports trans laws that affected one person in the state. <laughs> so going back to uh, the abortion, June 24th, of course, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And then what happened between June 27th and today, actually, was a back and forth where judges were creating stays on the law and allowing um, uh, the three abortion clinics in the state to reopen 
only two days later to have another judge remove that stay and force the trigger law. And that went back and forth four times. So two on one side, two on the other and these abortion clinics. And then of course, inside the state of Louisiana has been very confusing as to where we stand yeah, in I'll terms bet. of being able to provide reproductive uh, uh-huh. care. And it went to court today and uh, we're still waiting to see what the final result is to see. I mean, there's no question that the trigger law is going to take place, but where the confusion is, is that they were very vague in terms of what constitutes, where, where do they want abortion to start? Is it the point of conception, which would be very difficult, obviously, and that would essentially allow for the, um, it, would, it would outlaw many forms of birth control because they do take place in the form of conception or certainly implantation something like the iud Mm. so those have those designations have been purposely left vague uh as well and so of course just like anywhere else in the in the country um you know the those people who can afford to have abortions will continue to have abortions they're just not going to happen in louisiana and uh the abortion ban, uh as we know uh disproportionately affects uh poor uh women uh, especially women that are coming from uh communities of color and so that's really the the sad state of affairs that we're seeing here in louisiana um, and it's just only gonna, you know, I fear it's just only gonna keep getting worse as more, you know, we, this is a, this was a democratic governor who signed this into law. We'll never see another democratic governor in this state again, uh, moving forward. It'll be just kind of Republican governors, much like what we see in Texas or in Florida. And it'll just be one just trying to outdo the other. Mm. Um, and there's unfortunately a state legislator that will just, will bring these bills to the governor and the governor will sign them. So we're, mm. we're in a moment now that's very scary for the states. Sure. And so what, what is the uh, polling, public opinion polling in Louisiana on abortion rights? Uh, it depends on where you're polling. Of course, if you're polling uh, the southern part of the state, especially where we are, Baton Rouge and, and, and New Orleans, it's very uh, pro-reproductive uh, rights, abortion, uh, pro-choice. Uh, when you're polling the other parts of the state, so kind of the red parts of the state, it's a very strong anti-abortion uh, state. And that's just the sentiment. That's just the majority of the yeah. people in the state I mean, are uh, are very strongly anti-abortion. It is a Catholic state. Um, the roots of this um, of this country, uh, I'm sorry, the state before we were a state when we were its own country, so Louisiana, when we were founded by the French, um, was its roots are in Catholicism. So... That's kind of where a lot of this stuff comes from. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in Iowa, which is also a red state, which also has a very um, anti-choice uh, governor, uh, you know, it's it. The polling though is that I mean, most people support abortion rights too. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think depending on what questions you ask, there are people who would like to see some restrictions as, as to when it's appropriate, uh, you know, in, in uh, you know, a consent and that sort of thing. But overall, people in Iowa are are on a different page than the radicals who want to basically criminalize abortion and outlaw it from, from, from conception. Uh, and it sounds like it might not quite be the same in Louisiana, but uh, it's, it depends on what part of the state you're from, I guess. 
Right. I mean, again, they're, it, it, the abortion clinics will shut down in the state. It's mm. just it's not a matter of if it'll be when yeah. those laws are legit. Again, the reason why there's some, you know, there's some back and forth is that they purposely wrote the law to be very vague. And so until they add some specificity or again today, you know, today's uh, outcome, we'll see what today's outcome yeah. uh, shows. Well, but until there's some specificity in that law, uh, those three clinics are operating right now. But Again, they will be closed down, yeah. and uh, and again, this is not going to make abortions uh, go away. It's just going to hide abortions, and it's going right. to become abortions will yeah. be more dangerous. And then, of course, I would be remiss to, to not add that there's no exceptions for rape. There's no exceptions for incest. Wow. And of course, we saw that terrible case last week of the ten-year-old Ohio girl who had to go to Indiana in right. late June yeah. uh, because her parents found that she was raped uh, and. Uh, uh, and two days later, of course, is when the uh, Roe v. Wade uh, ruling came down and they had to go to uh, Indiana to actually get the abortion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that those sorts of cases are going to we're going to see a lot more of those. Right. And, uh, then, and, and those kinds of examples will hopefully continue to move public opinion in the right direction on this, because, uh, you know, it's 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 unconscionable to me to to. Imagine a woman who's been raped or the victim of incest to be forced to carry that fetus a to pregnancy. It's just incredible. A 10-year-old's ten- ten- body just cannot sustain a, 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 an infant, a growing baby. That's just mm, not... Right. And not only that, but, you know, the idea of a 10-year-old either delivering or C-section, that, that is just... That is a level of cruelty. Yeah. And, and, and I know we'll get into it in a second, but let me just kind of preface this by saying I was in Ukraine when a lot of this stuff went down. And the Ukrainians were looking at me like, what is going on? You know, and, and the Ukrainian women, the, 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 you know, there's no women's rights in Ukraine because there's just rights. Right. Like, <laughs> okay. It doesn't need to be distinguished. Right. Okay. And the women are looking at me like, what is going on? You know, and I, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, the idea of a 10 year old being forced to deliver a, a child and, and, and rapists being able to choose their mothers of their babies. And in some states will even be able to get paid for it, you know, through some of these, you know, through some of these laws that allow, uh, you know, like in Texas or in Idaho that, that, that allow for uh, people to uh, make some money on this. So mm. it, it's a scary state that we're in right now. It really is. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Ukraine and you, had, I know you had conversations about, uh, abortion rights there, but you were there for a broader humanitarian mission, I believe. Yes, so I was very fortunate prior to me being an infectious diseases physician, um, which is uh, maybe your listeners remind you know will be reminded of. And since you and I spoke a lot during the um, COVID outbreak, yes, I was actually a trauma physician and um, did ten years of trauma before I settled into infectious diseases full time. And so I was actually called out to Ukraine to work uh, to help evacuate uh, civilians from the Donbass region, uh, which is the area all the way to the east where there's really intense fighting. Yeah. Uh, the, right when we got there, we met with the Ministry of Health and it, it became very clear that because of the lack of petrol, because at that point the Russian Federation had taken hold of the southern portion of the country where the refineries and the ports are, 
the petrol and the availability for diesel was significantly curtailed. And so they asked us to start doing mass evacuations rather than one person per ambulance. So what that did is it shifted my focus into creating a new educational program uh, that we are designing uh, so that it's, we refer to it as the Armed Conflict Trauma Training Course. And what we did is developed an online training course for, uh, for physicians and nurses, because as we know, what we're seeing is that civilian installations are being deliberately targeted during this attack. And that, these yeah. are war crimes yeah. that the yeah. Russian uh, Federation yes. is, is engaging in. That will be adjudicated later, right. hopefully. But right now, what we're seeing is the deliberate attack. Last week, we saw two deliberate attacks, one on a medical building and one in a very large apartment building mm. uh, in central uh, Ukraine that they're able to get to either from the north through Belarus or from the south through the Black Sea. So it, what, what's happening is that clinicians, nurses, physicians, med students, whatever, are finding themselves you know, next to a building that's collapsed as a result of being missiled, and they're trying to deliver care but they may be a psychiatrist and have never, you know, don't realize that you have to stop the bleeding before you manage the airway right, right. or you have to manage the airway before you start dealing with circulation. So these basic concepts of pre-hospital trauma, we're teaching that to uh, physicians and nurses across the uh, yeah. across the country well, the, in Ukraine. It's a dangerous assignment. Did you uh, come under fire at any point? Um, many, many air raids. There was one time where we were very close. We were near a, a bombing. Um, and in fact, the entire city key completely shut down, um, as to, and then there was a forced, um, I wouldn't say evacuation, but there was a very strong sense to, uh, uh to evacuate. Um, every city I went to had been bombed in one way or another, mm -hmm. uh, especially mm -hmm. when you're looking at the middle eastern part of the country anything to the east north and south had been had been bombed so it's you know and it, what's what's really unique is you know i took two things from it ed is that one is that i sense that there's a form of violence that's coming to this country at some point in the future it's hard for me to not believe that that's going to happen and what i saw amongst the ukrainians despite the violence that was around them is that how life to a certain degree just continues on like, I'll, you know, I tell this story about we showed up at this one city in the northern part of the country that got attacked from Belarus and called Rivne City. And when we got there, the, we met with the mayor of the city. He wanted to engage our services for transportation. And when we got out of the ambulance, you could just smell this asteroid, you know, this, this smell in the, in the air. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. We were bombed 20 minutes ago. They just hit City Hall. And you could see the damage. It's still smoking, wow. right? Terrible. 20 minutes ago. And he's like, listen, let me take you guys to lunch. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, don't you have business to attend to? He's like, no, I got my people. I got a phone. I got two people in the in the uh, uh, that are on their way to the OR right now because they were critically hurt. But mm. let me take wow. you to lunch and let's talk some business. Wow. And you, and to a large degree, we went with it. We were more traumatized than he was because, to a large degree, you have to just continue living life. Yeah. Otherwise, that's a, another trauma in and of itself is okay. having to constantly yeah. be worried about it. Does I that just make got, sense? Yeah, I just got a couple minutes left here, uh, uh, okay. Mark Allen. So let, let me ask you one more question. The from your time there, from your time on the ground in Ukraine, your contact with Ukrainians, what do you see as the solution to this war, this conflict? I mean, you know, to, to be honest, obviously, it's for the Russian Federation to step back, period, and stop. What they want is they want the they want all of that 
all of that access to the Black Sea that the Ukraine has. It's that's why Ukraine is such a wealthy country. It's because of those ports, refineries, that's where grain and wheat is exported from. That's what the Russian Federation wants, as well as, of course, they want to try to, you know, Putin wants to try to reunify sure. what the USSR once was. And he always yeah. says that the breaking up of the USSR was the greatest crime of the so 20th century. So let's assume that Putin is not going to back down. Russia is not going to, they're going to keep going it's, until... It's going to be an endless war. Yeah. The Ukrainians aren't going to stop. They, mm. they, they said on day one or two they were ready to roll over. But I will say that Zelensky, President Zelensky, is a genius. He's a genius communicator. That man was obviously the John Stewart of Ukraine <laughs> prior to becoming president. Right, right. And he has galvanized that country. Do you know whenever they blow something up, Ed, whenever they blow something up, they will take the remnants, whatever they blow up, they create an art piece out of it, and they put it all throughout the country so that people can walk up and see what the Ukrainian armed forces are doing. Wow. They can see the pieces of planes. They can see the tanks that are being destroyed. Like Zelensky has created a massive uh, billboard uh, um, uh, advertising campaign throughout the country that is meant to like stand up and give pride for Ukraine. Wow. And not only that, but there's boxes everywhere for people to donate directly to the Ukrainian armed yeah. forces. And they do. And they do. Wow. There's such pride going on right now that it, people are going to line up and there's no way. And as I mentioned to you before, men and women together fighting on the front line. These mm. are the bravest people I've ever met. And mm. I will say, like all Ukrainians say, Slavri Ukraini, which means glory, glory upon Ukraine, mm. victory to Ukraine. Well, Mark Allen, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Uh, that sounded like a very intense trip <laughs> and a very important one. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Dr. Mark Allen Derry from New Orleans about his recent visit to the Ukraine and also about the abortion rights uh, battle in Louisiana. Uh, Dr. Derry, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Ed. It was such a pleasure. All right, folks, i got to run to a quick break. When we come back, more conversation for you here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum at Fallon Media, folks. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche that we provide here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website. You can sign up for our weekly blog. 
You can donate. Even better, you can become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, before I introduce my next guest, I want to, I want to circle back. I mentioned this plankton problem that, you know, it, we've known for a long time that plankton in the ocean, which is the building block of all life in the sea, everything eats plankton, you know, from, from tiny, tiny fry up to big whales. And uh, there was concern that it was gradually in decline. Well, boom, uh, a research project out of Edinburgh, Scotland, 90% of that plankton has now vanished. Uh, this is huge. This is almost impossible to totally wrap one's mind around. But I want you to think about that. When the basic life element of the oceans is compromised because the oceans have been becoming more acidic, uh, we have a huge problem on our hands. We're going to talk more about that, but, but now I want to run to our phone and welcome Mary Beth Sloniker to the program. Uh, Mary, join, Mary Beth joins us from Iowa City, and she wrote a book called Remembrance Park, and this has to do with the fur trade and uh, diversity back in eastern Iowa, but back into the, the 1800s. And um, there is a park now being built uh, to kind of try to bring people together because obviously settlement had its problems for a number of constituencies. Uh, Mary Beth, welcome to the program. Thanks. Hi, Ed. Yeah. So Remembrance Park. Congratulations on writing a book. Thanks a lot. <laughs> is this your first book? Uh, this is my fifth book. Oh, why? Well, you're four, you're four ahead of me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, right. I don't expect to, to do a book and then all of a sudden one appears. So well, it I, seems I, to be habit I'm, for me. I'm sorry you have that problem. <laughs> 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 after, write, after taking four years to write one book about the uh, Great March for Climate Action, I promised I would never, ever write another book. So far, mm -hmm. I've held true to that promise. But, um, but, but you've written about uh, Remembrance Park... Um, so it's not just, it's not a book glorifying the fur trade, but it, no. it, it good. You, you describe it in your own words. Well, um, it started out actually, I was a graduate student in art and um, art and art history here at the university. And I made a glass book uh, about this period of time. I was just really uh, enchanted by it. And that was in 1990. And then uh, 30 years later, <laughs> Uh, this particular book came out this last March, and um, it's about the fur traders and about the relationship with the Meskwaki uh, tribe at the time in, in the uh, early uh, 1830s. And um, lo and behold, uh, one of my dreams was to have a small park in remembrance of this uh, kind of historic meeting, uh, January, a very cold January day in 1838 when there were seven people from the county that got together and it turned out to be a native american woman named jenny a black um, african-american man named mogok a fur trader john gilbert and four settlers and they um, were um, kind of grousing about the fact that they didn't have any newspapers, they didn't have anything to read, they didn't have any uh, letters, um, there was no way of getting anywhere because there weren't any roads, and so they decided to go to Burlington and present um, 
basically the formation of the county. And Burlington, Iowa, was the provision that was the 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 capital of the state prior to statehood. Right. It wasn't a state yet. It right. Was, in fact, it wasn't even a territory. Cap capital is the wrong word, but that's where the that's where yeah, the the focus right. of power was at that point. Again, for people not exactly. from Iowa, Burlington is just on the uh, west bank of the uh, Mississippi River, just across from Illinois. Right. So um, this this meeting happened. They formed a government, and the beauty of it was that there was all this diversity in our county at that first meeting, so-called meeting of uh, uh, local county government. And this is of Johnson and County. Johnson County. Which is now, right. which is, that's the where, that's where Iowa City is located. And again, for people who may not be familiar with the history, Iowa City became the location for the first state capital in Iowa. That's right. And so um, they were to find out that six months later, six months later, they would become a territory separated off from Wisconsin. And um, so just uh, because our, our city, our county is diverse, we, we uh, emphasize that, we try to uh, have that as our goal. Um, this seemed like a, a beautiful way of honoring that tradition from the very, very beginning. Um, so um, my hope was to have a little park down in the area where these, there was actually three trading posts at the time, mm. and um, different men. And um, so the, the park is on private land. The owner wishes to be anonymous. Um, he gave us um, uh, the availability of using the land, and we've put on some um, boulders that were donated by a local company, and um, the they were moved there by another company, uh, so very generously. And um, there are going to be some plaques, and on September 5th, um, we're going to have a little celebration to open up the park and draw attention oh, to this right. legacy. But let, me, let me go back to the 1830s, <laughs> 1838, mm -hmm. I believe you said. Um, it seems unusual given what what I what we know of the time that a that a fur trader uh, for a presumably white European settlers uh, a, an African American um, mm -hmm. and a Native American Meskwaki person would mm -hmm. all be collaborating in any way shape or form that 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 seems very newsworthy in itself it does and um Without trying to read in uh, their their particular um, participation into this whole thing, we just know they were there. We don't know how much everybody was engaged, um, but they were there. Jenny was a Winnebago uh, Indian, and she was supposedly it was in the in the uh, local histories. It's pointed out that she was very talkative. And that was unusual for a Native American woman. So I suspect <laughs> that she gave her opinions. <laughs> Good. Um, Mogok was employed by the fur traders, and he was a kind of handyman, a, 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 called a man of all work. And uh, so he was there. And was he a, was uh, he a freed slave, or what, what he, was his history? The, um, the original fur trading family, American fur trading family, or the Phelps, and they were abolitionists. Mm, okay. um, they, came, they came from New York. And so um, they were bought, I believe, I believe they were bought, or they did buy some, some black slaves, but they were given, um, apparently, employment. Not much is said about this. One has to sort of, you know, assume. Mm. Um, and um, 
their, their, the tradition in the family was that they were anti-slavery. Hmm. Okay. So um, that's about all we can tell for sure. But so, anyway, they were there and, and at this meeting. So, yeah, and one also has to wonder, I mean, the, for, you know, uh, uh, Europeans coming to hunt fur, hunt animals and sell the furs, that had to be conflicting at some point with Native communities who also relied on those animal populations. Was that, is there any indication of whether that was a conflict? There was that kind of conflict between the settlers, the fur trader, uh, Jenny, and then any other Native people that might have been connected with this, uh, this conversation? Well, actually, the fur trader, um, John Gilbert, was the, the men, the, the Anglo-American men, really used the Meskwaki males as uh, hunters, and, and they would bring in the furs. So they weren't comp- competing on that oh. level. Um, in fact, it was at a, a moment in time where the whites were as dependent on the Native communities as the Native communities were on the white communities that they were trading with. Hmm. Um, there were just a couple of white men at that time. Uh, they were uh, kind of extended into a culture that they weren't part of, that they just, you know, they dealt in. And so there was this sort of just one little moment where this was equal. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so they weren't preying on the Native Americans. They were, they had... Yeah. Uh, Employed there was there was, there was some, some symbiosis there, some dependence. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. You know, this reminds me a little bit of the uh, history of Buxton, Iowa. Are you familiar with Buxton? Um, just vaguely. Yeah, not, a, not a, 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 communi- yeah. a coal mining community southeast of Des Moines. I believe in, it would have been in Monroe County. It's no longer extant, but it was, uh, it, it was a community that knew racial harmony well before that was ever ever a reality. And I understand we still have a ways to go in terms of achieving that reality at a universal basis level. But, but Buxton mm-hmm. was a community that was uh, um, both black and white, um, united in, in, in people's uh, employment with the coal industry. And uh, it's, the history is pretty fascinating. And it just shows you, as I think this does, that when, when uh, you know, when you when you take some of the obstacles out of the way, political um, uh, and and personal in some cases, you can actually have uh, plenty of opportunity for people to get along quite well, regardless of their race, culture, religious background. So, right. well, you had um, you know the southern a southern element of settler coming in with different attitudes towards slavery than the northern uh, attitude towards slavery. So, I was kind of as had. And Iowa City has had both, um, but um, generally, I think more more towards uh, anti-slavery than okay than pro. So for yeah. those for those who can uh, join you on September fifth in Iowa City, what uh, what kind of celebration are we looking at here? Well, I don't. It, some of this stuff is still being developed. There was talk of um, possibly getting a Meskwaki dancer. Um, we're trying to get um, somebody, a representative from the black community. Um, I'm hoping somebody from the uh, AME church. Um, so this is still in development. But one thing I can tell you is that on Friday, the 2nd of September, um, the sixth generation of the Phelps family is coming from um, Little Rock, Arkansas with 
with memorabilia from the fur trading oh, uh, family. Very good. And she's bringing something that was given to Keokuk, Chief Keokuk, from President Andrew Jackson. <laughs> So, um, okay. a, a, cab, no, a cabinet. No, so, no friend of the Native communities, but anyway. No, yeah. <laughs> apparently one friend, but yeah. that's about it. Yeah, no. well, so uh, that's happening on Friday. Yeah. Well, hey, folks, we've been talking with Mary Beth Sloniger, the, uh, the author of Remembrance Park, uh, and there will be a Remembrance Park is being built. Uh, and the theme is, I think, very, very encouraging. And the event will happen on September 5th. If people want to learn more about that, uh, Mary Beth, uh, can they find that online? How do they do that? Yeah, um, my friend Marty Bowler has a site, riowaheritage.com. Right. And he, he does, he issues okay. updates on all this. So Very yeah. good. Go there. All right, Mary Beth, thank you for joining us. Uh, folks, when we come back, we're going to be uh, talking with... Uh, we're going to be talking about a Green Party candidate who does not think the Democrats have treated him very fairly. That's the situation growing out of North Carolina. Back in a minute for that conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. You can check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And uh, speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. Now, before we bring our next guest in, again, I want to I want to remind folks about this situation with plankton. And I say that, and I immediately see people's uh, eyes roll, or maybe they just fall asleep. But um, you know, the 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 death of plankton in the Atlantic Ocean is a huge catastrophic indicator of where we're at with the climate crisis. And this, uh, this landmark research out of Edinburgh, it blames the uh, chemical pollution from plastics, farm fertilizers, thank you, Iowa, and pharmaceuticals. And um, again, it was you know, previously believed that uh, you know, maybe the plankton in the oceans had, had, gotten, had been cut in half. Well, now it's 90% has vanished. And again, this is huge. 
And uh, there's lots of good, good articles about it out there, including one by Juan Cole. Um, and uh, he just says that he just talks about how bad this is for all of us. You know, so we, we need to start paying attention to all the climate indicators that are happening. And while this isn't uh, exactly related to it, I want to point out that my next guest is a candidate for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina. He's running on the Green Party ticket. Matthew, uh, Matt Ho, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and uh, you, um, you, uh, and, and I'm not, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't endorse candidates, so I'm not. This is not supporting you, your candidacy in any way, shape, or form. The FCC wouldn't allow that, uh, and, and again, I'm not in North Carolina, so I can't. Uh, I can't really weigh in on that. But what interests me about your race is the extent to which a conflict has developed between you as a Green Party candidate and the Democrats in the county. So I'm interested in knowing, first of all, what happened and why it's a big deal. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show, Ed. Um, so in order to be on to the ballot, uh, we had to become recognized as a political party in North Carolina, uh, the Green Party. And in order to do that, we had to go out and collect signatures as a petition process. And we did that. We met all the requirements, met all the deadlines, turned all our signatures in. Uh, just to give people an idea, we needed 13,865 signatures. Uh, those had to be verified signatures. So That's signatures at the county boards of election uh, would then... Uh, say, okay, this is a valid signature. And to give people some, some background who may not be familiar with petitioning, across the country, uh, the, 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 the standard is that for every four signatures you collect, only three are going to count. In petitioning drives for decades, you know, again, across the country, there's about a 75% validity rate in terms of the collection. Right, because, because somebody way. makes a mistake. They put the wrong address, right. they don't sign it correctly, they don't date it right, yeah. I get yeah, exactly. That, yeah. I mean, and, and this is, I mean, so we, we needed 13,865. We collected more than 22,500. That, that's a high standard. Um, those, that, that's a lot. I'm sorry? That's a lot of, that's a lot of signatures. It is a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of those 22,500, almost 16,000, 15,953 were verified by the counties. So we were almost 2,100 more than we needed. And it is a lot. And it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of work. It ended up costing a lot of money because even though you utilize volunteers, you know, you have folks who want to be out there doing this for you uh, and you need them out there 10, 20, 30 hours a week and they can't afford to be out there. So we had to raise the money to pay our people. Ninety five percent of our effort came from our people, part of our party, part of my campaign. Yeah. Socialists, independents, leftists, people who are part of our movement. But we had to pay them for their time because otherwise they couldn't afford to be out there. And that's, you know, on the larger context of this. This is how ballot access by requiring these right. having these onerous uh, requirements for signatures is a, a way of suppressing voter choice. It keeps independents and third parties off the ballots if they don't have the money and already have a, a, a structure and organization to do this. And I would but say, I would say, required. man, I would say, too, that it varies from state to state. Uh, right. Some states have even more onerous requirements for third-party candidates. Some, it's a lot easier. One thing I'm curious about, though, what what is the comparable requirement, the signature requirement for a Democrat or Republican candidate for the uh, for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina? There is none. They they maintain a ballot access just based upon um, uh, you know their previous ballot access. Oh, well, that, so, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that's, okay. Exactly. You're right. Every state's different. Right. Some states are, are nearly impossible to do it. Other states are more reasonable. And, you know, in North Carolina, 
Um, if I was running as an independent rather than a party, for some reason, North Carolina dislikes parties more than, I'm sorry, dislikes independents more than they dislike parties. If I was running <laughs> as an independent, I would have needed 83,000 signatures rather than 14,000 signatures. Wow. Uh, in other states, it's the opposite. So up in Maine, uh, my friend Lisa Savage, who ran up there, uh, she could not run as a Green Party candidate because in Maine, parties require you know, many more times the signatures that an independent does. So, so it's, it's the, the exact opposite. Um, you know, I, I, no, I, I'm surprised yeah. there's not a lawsuit happening in both states in the opposite direction, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, we have, I mean, we have our lawsuit here, you know, oh, you do. what okay. happened is, and on top of all this, what is the governing authority on this, the state board of elections is a partisan organization. The board of the state board of elections are political appointees. So in North Carolina, there are three Democrats and two Republicans on the on the state board of elections who decide such things as whether or not a candidate or a party will be recognized as official. Which a friend of mine over city said to me, he said, and this probably cuts through this the best is this one statement. He said, "Wait a minute, hang on. You're telling me that in the United States, in order for a candidate to be on the ballot or a political party to be on the ballot." They have to have the approval of their opponents. Yes, that's exactly how it works. So let me ask you, you know, this, Matt. I mean, Matt, you said you said you got twenty-two thousand plus signatures. You needed thirteen thousand plus, uh, and by the time you get it done verifying, you had you had about sixteen thousand that were verifiably valid. At what point and how did the Democratic Party intervene and basically prevent those signatures from being accepted? Well, there's two aspects to this. One is the actual state board of election itself, again, uh, run by Democrats. And when we brought our signatures in, uh, they, they took the full 30 days uh, to review their signatures. Uh, we had to turn our signatures in by June 1st, and the state board of elections had to have had to certify us by July 1st. Not only did they have to certify us, but after certification, we had to have a state not had to have a nominating convention. We had to have our people go and register as Green Party members with the county board of elections, and we had to uh, have our candidates go and file for office. So it shows just the bad faith on the state board of elections part because they chose to certify us on the very last day possible, which would have given us less than a day's time to do all these other things we needed to do in order to make it on the ballot. But what they did essentially was they took our signatures, they held on to them for the full month. Um, and this is something that had never been done before. It's another aspect of this. We hear from uh, people throughout the state that the state board of elections has never scrutinized signatures in the manner they are doing to us. And what they are claiming, they claim it, they're claiming they were looking for irregularities and that they were honing in on certain irregularities. And then they were claiming that there was possible fraud. And we were never really presented with this evidence. We were, we were told that this might be going on, but we were never really given any evidence. And certainly at the certification hearing, we were not given any due process. We were not shown, again, what they're claiming the problem is, why we should be kept off the ballot. Um, and then in a pure partisan uh, manner, uh, a strict uh, Democrat versus Republican vote, we were denied certification. And the argument goes is that because there were these irregularities in some of the signatures, and these are signatures that had never been validated, so they weren't talking about our nearly 16,000 verified signatures. But because of there were irregularities, which again, always exists in the petitioning process, um, that there could be, that, that means there could be more irregularities. And because there could be more irregularities, they need more time to investigate. But because tomorrow is a deadline, they didn't have, we don't have time to investigate is what wow. they said, so we're not gonna certify you. What? And so basically it just, 
was was the process of us being denied uh, a spot on the ballot simply because they didn't want us on the ballot. So let, uh, let me, the let, argument uh, was, was simply that there could be something right. wrong here. We're not going to tell you what it is, and we're going to deny you. That's and that's so, uh, that yeah, seems so, like that seems like a lawsuit that could be won if the courts themselves were unbiased. But let me ask you this: right. well, uh, Democrats would only try to do this. And again, again, I would Republicans would absolutely do the same thing, uh, in right, my right. in my opinion, in, in different circumstances. But Democrats would try to do try to do this. The only reason they do it is because they think you might have a chance of gaining enough support that you would ruin the Democratic candidate's chances of winning. Is that a fair? And I, I know nothing about the race. I don't even know who's running other than you. Right. But is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment along the lines of that we will be representing issues uh, that working families, you know, working class or middle class voters are concerned about and that want. Uh, we, if we're not on the ballot, uh, then issues like single payer health care, uh, affordable housing, uh, annualized living wages, uh, ending the war on drugs, action on climate, like you're discussing earlier, just before we started. Um, if we're not on the ballot, those issues will not be there. And that's what the Democratic Party would prefer. They prefer to have a centrist candidate like they do now who is not going to discuss or bring up or be asked about any of these issues that have a real effect on the lives of millions of working North Carolinians. And that's why they're so threatened by us and why they want to keep us off the ballot. So are there, I'm curious, are there other, are there other third-party candidates running for office in North Carolina, even maybe your, your county your county boards, your state legislative seats, are you the only um, third-party candidate on the ballot, or are there others? No, there, there are. Um, there, uh, the Libertarian Party is present in North Carolina, and they have candidates running at all levels, uh, including a candidate for U.S. Senate. So Shannon Bray is a Libertarian Party candidate, and uh, he is on the ballot. So there are uh, currently three people on the ballot, Democrat or Republican and Libertarian, and we are in court now to have our rightful spot as the fourth on the ballot. And, and why did, uh, and I, I assume the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate also had to gather 13,000 plus signatures, correct? Uh, no, not this time around. They had uh -huh. done that in the past, and they, because they have a uh, presidential candidate uh, present on 70% of state ballots ac across the country, they are grandfathered in. So as long as the Libertarians have a presence with a presidential candidate on, I think it's with 35 ballots across the state, they can run you here mean, in North you Carolina. Mean across, you mean across the U.S.? Across the United States, yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, that that's um, wonderfully arbitrary. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, but the Libertarians have been a very great help to us because in the past they have had these petitioning drives. And one of the things their executive director just said the other day about this whole process, he's been involved, a guy named Brian Irving, he's been involved in he's, he's never seen where actions handle the circumstances as they are in the sense that count, what the counties had done in terms of verifying signatures over decades – was always accepted by the state, and this is the first time he has ever seen the state board of elections do what they're doing in terms of holding up our certification because of supposed concerns over irregularities. Hmm. Uh, and again, those irregularities always exist in the petitioning process. Yeah. So, uh, North Carolina uh, legislature: uh, there are Republicans, Democrats, any Libertarians, Greens, any other, any independents in the legislature? No, no, just all all Democrats and Republicans in the state house. So here's what I don't get, uh, Matt: is is why third parties don't invest more time and effort and money 
in trying to win one or more of the lower level partisan elections, whether it be, I mean, I'm not sure whether your county boards are partisan or nonpartisan, but here in Iowa, um, county boards of supervisors, as we call them, are partisan, um, as are legislative districts, of course. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't understand why third parties don't mobilize all their resources to that, you know, to f find the smallest partisan unit of government you can. Uh, maybe run one, two candidates at most, and really try to win those seats and begin to make inroads into the two-party domination of the process. So I, why is that not a good idea? Well, it, it can be, and it is effective, and the Green Party nationally has been uh, pretty effective at that. Nationally, the Green Party has won more than 1,000 races across the country, and I think we have 135 sitting uh, elected officials across the but, country but, at the but, Green Party. But, but let me ask you something. Are those 135 Green Party elected officials, are they, are they in partisan offices or nonpartisan offices? I believe the way that it's counted is, is counted as partisan offices. Uh, that's my understanding is the way that those totals are, are set up. But uh, but here in North Carolina, you know, and I understand what you're, you're saying it with the um, with that strategy. And I agree to a great degree. However, here we are trying to get on the ballot and be recognized statewide as a political party. Um, and just my background, uh, my experience as a former, uh, you know, I'm a disabled combat veteran. I have time up in Washington, D.C. as with the State Department. Most of my work has been on national level things. Um, and so my experience and in, in, in where my um, best, uh, I guess, background, the best use of my background applies to national level politics, right. uh, as well as just my contacts with media and some other things. So the idea was that having a statewide run would assist with the statewide ballot access program. And again, as a new political party here starting off, mm. this was the way that we thought it was the best way to go about getting the ballot access. And then once we have the ballot access, that makes it a lot easier for candidates to run in future elections because they don't have to go through that requirement itself. Because someone who wants to start off, and, and I agree, running at the county or at the say at the, at the uh, you know state house or the state senate level, um, you know it is it's difficult enough. But then to have to also qualify individually to be on the ballot, uh, you know, and maybe they don't want to run as an independent. And again, in North Carolina, it's so much more restrictive to run as an independent than it is as a party. Hmm. So that was kind of our strategy in doing this it this way. Uh, and then hopefully we are in the ballot and then, you know, the success of this campaign in 2024, we're able then to run, run yeah. candidates throughout the state, you know, at multiple levels. Well, Matt, if you do get on the ballot and, uh, and just for the sake of, uh, of, of making it as interesting and competitive as process and competitive as possible. I always like to see multiple candidates from various parties on ballots across the country. If you do make it on the ballot, I hope you'll ask. I hope at your first debate you'll ask your opponents what they plan to do about the precipitous decline of plankton in the Atlantic Ocean, mm. uh, and more broadly about the climate crisis. But. Uh, well yeah, I mean, and that that's a that's an incredibly serious issue. I mean, look what's occurring, say, right today in Europe with the heat in Europe. Matt, I got to run to a break, but I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Folks, we've been talking with Matt Ho. He's a, a candidate for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina. We've been talking about a conflict between a third party, in this case, the Green Party and the Democratic Party. Matt, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Hey, folks, when we come back uh, during our farm and food segment, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about the glyphosate that may be hiding in your health food. 
Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, remember, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or a nonprofit, if you run a nonprofit, you guys can also become sponsors of this program, and I hope you do. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so I was telling you about plankton, and I don't want to get into this too much more because we could spend a lot of time on this. But um, yeah, so plankton, just in case you don't know, plankton are the kind of the building blocks of, of the ocean. It's, a, it's those tiny, tiny sea organisms you can't even see uh, that are eaten by krill and eaten by fish and then whales. And basically no plankton, then you've got little to no marine life. And 90% of it's gone. And it's not just climate change, it's also plastics, it's farm chemicals. And my question is, what are you going to do about it, folks? What are we going to do about it? We've got to do something about it. We've got to do something fast. And related to that whole conversation is the glyphosate issue. Uh, glyphosate, think Roundup. And think cancer, in the same breath. Kathy, with, uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm, uh, we do not apply any glyphosate on our crops. No, do we not? No. No, we, <laughs> no, no, we, no, we do not. Again. No, we do not. Um, I, I'm having trouble with words right now because I'm still reeling from the fact that we had big plankton sandwiches for our lunch today. <laughs> Wait, plankton sandwiches? <laughs> they don't need to be in the sea. We, we just, yeah, if they can eat them. In, <laughs> being silly here. So uh, I wonder how much glyphosate is in plankton. But what we Probably want to talk about is, uh, you know, glyphosate in our food. Our real food yeah. that we eat. Not Even plankton. in your health food, right? Perhaps. Now, we we were not, you know, we think about this a lot, uh, but we were, had our awareness heightened about the glyphosate or Roundup issue recently because of some spraying that has been going on in our neighborhood. And as a lot of people know, we have an urban farm, Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We use no chemicals and we like healthy food. And uh, we, we just, we want to discuss this because uh, it's, it's kind of surprising where you might find glyphosate. And it's surprising that how, what people don't know about it. I mean, there's so many lawsuits right now. And mm -hmm. Monsanto Bear, mm -hmm. Bear bought Monsanto, 
they they're losing them all, which is which is encouraging to me. But it's discouraging the more people don't know about that and know how important it is to avoid using those products. Right. And the the lawsuits that are being taken uh, up by the courts now and being won by the plaintiffs uh, are mainly surrounding the the use of glyphosate by agricultural workers who are exposed to it on A their lot. skin. Yeah. They might be breathing it in. And uh, we, we just got more and more interested in, well, what happens if this stuff drifts over onto our food? So it's, it's interesting to know, it's important to know, once a product like Roundup or another chemical that contains glyphosate gets, and it's an herbicide, once it, once it gets on your food, you can't wash it off and it doesn't come out with cooking. That's important to know. You can't just wash it away. It's there. And there's scientific evidence that continues to link glyphosate with cancer, as Ed mentioned, specifically non-Hodgkin lymphoma. There is some recent research, several studies on exposure to glyphosate-based herbicides and cancer in agricultural workers identified a 41% increase in cancer risk for the group that's exposed at wow. the highest levels. Yeah. So how does it end up in uh, in what you would otherwise classify as health food? Well, I, I'm being a little cheeky with the health food, but, you know, oatmeal. You know, let's be healthy. Let's eat oatmeal. Let's make our own bread. Let's, let's make sure. Let's find, a, let's find a way to be healthy without eating oatmeal. <laughs> I like oatmeal. Let's eat whole wheat bread. So uh, surprisingly, in an article that I was reviewing, oats and wheats have really high levels of glyphosates, and these are commercial brands that you wouldn't really expect to have that. Um, the um, statistics are from some tests commissioned by the Environmental Working Group, or EWG, in 2018 and 2019. So according to this study, oats uh, are supposed to have a, quote, safe level per the EPA of 0.16 parts per million, but the EWG sets standards for children's consumption much lower than that. Uh, they consider 0.16 parts per million to be the you know the highest level, uh, you know for safe consumption of children's foods. So, uh, glyphosate was found in more than 95% of popular oat-based samples. E- even even those that are raised organically. Mm-hmm. No. No. Okay. Um, All right. Good. Well, good. and and there there can still be some glyphosate in foods that are grown organically, but. Uh, the best way to try to avoid it is to look for the USDA, you know, organic right. seal. Yep, yep. Uh, that that is the most um, surefire thing. In wheat, the safe level is supposedly per the EPA thirty parts per million, but again, the EWG uh, sets much lower threshold for safety. And in the studies, glyphosate was detected in all of the wheat-based foods that wow. they that they sampled. Pasta samples contained uh, glyphosates ranging from 0.06 to 0.15 parts per million. And um, cereal samples had a little bit lower level, but above the limit for what they thought was safe for children. So the question is, why the heck are these foods that are supposed to be healthy, uh, why do they have so much glyphosate in them? And that's because of the harvesting methods. The... The harvesters can't move through those crops and other crops like chickpeas, beans, when they're moist or damp at all. Well, what do you mean they can't? Uh, It's just it takes more time and it gums up the machinery. 
So if you're huh. if you're working through green crops and there's a lot of the moisture in it, uh, it's really tougher on the machinery and it slows down the production. So what a lot of the producers are doing is these pro- products are not resistant to glyphosate like corn mm-hmm. and soybeans are. So before harvesting, when the product is ready, they'll go through and spray the plants. Oh, that's horrible. With Roundup type or glyphosate something... to kill the plant and let it dry quickly, and then they can get the harvesters through it. That, that, just, I, sounds, I, that just sounds horrifying. I know. I was I was pretty <laughs> oh shocked gosh. with that. Okay. The food is there. It's ready. It's it's ready for harvest, but the plant is not ready to have the harvester go through it, and so mm. they spray it to boom quick kill that plant so they can save time and get their harvesters through yeah i mean you know remember what happened with ddt of course we outlawed it in this country after some you know some great efforts to expose it and then it got sold to uh foreign countries yeah. and comes back from you know, from produce there well so people gotta make money <laughs> oh anyway so we, we could talk a lot more about glyphosate kathy thanks uh, so much for joining us you're welcome folks uh, thanks to all of our guests today dr mark allen Derry. Mary Beth Sloniger and Matt Ho, and thanks to our production squad of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, uh, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bowl Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks again, folks, and we will be back again next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away that DDT now. Give me spots on my apples, believe me, the birds and the bees. Don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking